you. What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Excellent! Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week we are discussing the four-issue Martian Manhunter miniseries from 1988. This is the character's first solo title. He debuted in a backup feature in Detective Comics back in the 50s as... Yeah, just a backup feature in the ongoing Batman book, Detective Comics, and from there was brought into the Justice League, where he was one of the original Big Seven, and it's really that, I think it's fair to say, that has allowed the character to hold on to some degree of prominence and cultural relevance ever since, because... Unlike basically all of the rest of them, of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, etc., he does not constantly, without fail, have solo series. They're kind of a surprise and a brief treat when they happen, but mostly this character is known as being the heart of the Justice League. If you've seen the 2000s cartoon... He is obviously the Martian, who is just a tragic figure of, oh, he lost his family, he's a nice guy, and he's green. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Doesn't like fire. Yeah, that's a big one too. Best voice of the lot. Oh yeah, the voice work is excellent. This is the first, like, titular Martian Manhunter book, and... It's sort of a reinvention of the character, but also just an affirmation of all of the most classic aspects of him at the same time. We'll get into some plot stuff, like when the time comes, but essentially all the basics of the character just from the Justice League cartoon comprise the majority of what you would need to know for this of just, he is the Martian member of the Justice League, He, in this case, in the comics continuity, was brought to Earth via a essentially teleportation machine experiment from a man named Dr. Ertl, who unfortunately died shortly thereafter. And so Martian Manhunter, John Jones, John Jones, was stuck on Earth without any way to get back home and would go on to ingratiate himself into the JLA, the Earth superhero community, etc., etc. And, like you said, afraid of fire. That's going to be important coming up in this. And, real quick, I haven't actually done the creative roll call. This is by writer J.M. DeMatteis and artist and colorist Mark Badger, which... J.M. DeMatteis was 
writing four issue solo character miniseries in the 80s like it was nobody's business because there was the gargoyle one also of mark badger and there's the 80s iceman one which we'll probably get to yeah i feel like that's next x month we're gonna wind up doing that iceman i think it's fair to say we both historically like jm de mateus yeah yeah, I, I know I'm just off of being fond of some of his super, uh, Spider-Man issues, uh, but like he's just all over the place. He did everything. Yeah. And it was always good. Yeah, just like a reliably consistent, strong quality writer. I don't think I had read any Mark Badger work before this. I think I've only read this and the Gargoyle series. What about you? So far as I'm aware, this is the only thing. It's the only thing that comes to mind. And it looks really great. Yeah, it's it's great stuff. Essentially, the way this story opens is that Martian Manhunter is losing control of his form. Because, essentially, like, as a shapeshifter, you know, he can alter his form at will. And not just in a mystique sort of way of turning into other people but a much more variable sort of extent to the range of his power you know where like can basically morph into dragon looking shit can turn into all sorts of shapes things like that and the series opens up with Jean basically losing control of his body and Feeling feverish, he does not feel like he has full mental faculties. He thinks that he's hallucinating, that he is in particular being chased by this fiery demon-looking character. And basically it's him running to Batman for help. Martians really won the superpower lottery, didn't they? Literally everything Superman has plus more. Yeah, because they've got, like, the Superman set of flight and laser vision and invulnerability and super strength. And then they've got the shape-shifting, which is, like, it's not just shape-shifting, it's really fucking good shape-shifting. It's, like, full molecular control shape-shifting. And then they also have telepathy and, depending on the version, I believe, also telekinesis. Telepathy to the extent of, like worldwide range like him always being the like telepathic link between the entire league like he has everything and it's virtually limitless in the extent of how powerful it is jean is basically an entire x-men team but as like one dude yeah which also speaks to just how great this character is that it doesn't matter Literally, like, if there is a character who people could potentially complain about being overpowered, it would be him. But no one ever says that because he's everybody's favorite. Because he's everybody's favorite sweet, sad green boy. It is an absolute fucking travesty that he was not in the Justice League film. Like, either version is automatically shit as a Justice League film because there's no Martian Manhunter. Well, the whole erasure of him from the team in the new 52 era is just simply something I cannot tolerate. 
But anywho, we have to have Hal. We can't go without Hal Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> but anywho, this series has really stunning art in a lot of ways. And this opening sequence where we sort of like see what Batman is up to before Jean shows up asking him for help. It's basically this scene of Batman tracking down this serial killer of young children. And this short scene contains like a lot of examples of various hallmarks of Badger's style and what's happening here. So there's a whole list of shit to get to, but one thing I guess just that I'll immediately note is the coloration choice with regards to page backgrounds, because this is not the sort of old school comic where all of like the background space between panels is just white. And not only that, but the coloration choices are inconsistent in a good way. I mean, because Badger is willing in a way that, you know, I guess in modern comics maybe would seem less remarkable. But for the time in which this came out, the frequent switching between, like, the standard white backgrounds to this opening scene, we have more of a sort of copper brown. And just throughout the series' span... We just see a nice willingness to play around with the color palettes in such a way as to better fit the events and I guess just sort of trigger just really nice contrasts. What do you think? I think it's great. There's um, a bit of coloring, especially that I'll, I'll talk about later on, where we see um, this is a really great panel of... Um, a bunch of Martians that uh, Jean is remembering. And the panel is all done in, I think, the coppery brown that we see here, uh, except for the Martians' faces that are sort of done roughly around the edges in green, and it looks so fucking great. Like a sepia-toned picture, except because this is of green people, we see the green. Yeah. And in this opening sort of spread of the Batman scene in particular... We do still see, like, great use of white, except instead of just, like, you know, white as the background, it is white as a foreground contrast color, because it's specifically storming, and, like, there's a lightning storm going, illuminating the dark of the night. So we just see these, like, white flashes across parts of the characters. We see white in the background illuminating the architecture of the building that Batman is flinging himself across. And it's that classic old school Batman suit where it's the gray and the blue with the yellow ring around the emblem. So he stands out really nicely against the rest of the darker aspects of the color choices of the like browns and then also sort of red bordering on magenta or red violet color choices that we get here also the use of 
whites and shading parts of Batman's cowl in specific panels as well as parts of his cape, which brings me to another thing which needs noting is simply how cool Batman's cape and Batman in general look here. Yeah, I love the angularity of it. And um, the cape is always just at, like, maximum drama rather than maximum realism, which is how it should always be drawn. Uh, there's some panels where it borders on Todd McFarlane cape syndrome, which is very high praise. It's excellent, yeah. So many folds and points to the cape as it just blows evocatively in the wind. And that's something to it, too, is just, like... From panel to panel, there will be a fair amount of variance in the actual colors used. From, like, the literal gray suit, blue cape, to other panels of him just in shadow, of black silhouettes with lightning casting white on parts of the cowl, to darker tones and just, like, especially dramatic panels, and... It all really works, like, the inconsistency is never a bad thing. It always feels really properly owned for the drama of that specific panel. You can tell it's the late 80s because we're opening with child murder. We are opening with literal child murder, yeah. (laughs) I was worried if I was going to have enough to say about this comic, but we have managed to reach minute 15 of raw audio talking about the first four pages, so... Yeah, I think we're fine. Yeah. (laughs) And after this opening sequence, the splash page with the title and then the actual credits box is our first shot. Or we see him like peeping up at the very end of the prior page. But our first full shot of Jean is him screaming, help me, appearing from behind Batman. And we see sort of the shape-shifting fluid form that we talked a little bit about before wherein there's a lot of Jean having really bendy limbs in this book like here it looks a lot like they're sort of twisting around themselves and coming to multiple sharp points but not like five so it's not like perfectly analogous to like fingers you know there's just a sense that He is swirling all around and looking all fucked up. It looks really good. Yeah, I I like when you sit and think about Martian physiognomy for a second, and you're like, oh yeah, all those muscles we normally see on Jean's weirdly naked outfit that he wears are entirely faked. He doesn't have muscles that are shaped like that. That's just like, his body is sort of just all one thing. Because otherwise his shape-shifting doesn't make any sense. So I love seeing that here. And I really love the angularity that things are drawn with. Like, Badger has, like, it's not extreme in that not everything is pointy all the time. But frequently very dramatic things will get very pointy. Which I love. Like, Batman's cape and his cowl and stuff. Like, a lot of Batman is drawn to, like, sharp edges and sharp lines. And same with Jean whenever he is more fucked up, and I think it's a really great, like, visual choice. Oh, yeah. And especially in Jean's case, it feels really important to the storytelling since 
so much of the book is about him being sick and losing control, so we really need the breadth of extremity and variation from how he usually looks to really sell just what's going on with him. Which, speaking of how he usually looks, as you're saying of his muscles and everything, John Jones, who... The usual self we see is all a morphed compromise to make people feel more comfortable. And his idea of how to make people feel more comfortable of him is an entirely naked body, plus tidy blueies, plus boots, plus a cape. This is the first comic, though, that is made that outfit make sense to me. Because we get explained where this form came from towards the end of this, not to spoil the story, but the influences on, like, Jean's idea of himself that we find out about are, like, also the influences that presumably, like, I think led to this outfit. Like, in the context of the character as he's reinvented here, the outfit for the first and only time in his history makes sense. Yeah. And I love the design, it's very striking, but it's also just, like, he is wearing blue tidy whiteies, um, incredibly dramatic folded-over boots, a Doctor Strange cape, and then, like, f- just two strips of red fabric forming an X over his naked torso, <laughs> which just makes him look more naked. It really does, yeah. Essentially, these issues reference a contemporary to the time Justice League annual where the story basically tells you what you need to know of there was some sort of alien spore that was a threat to the world and Jean with his alien physiognomy yeah essentially was able to contain it within himself to save other people Except in this series, it turns out, oh, maybe he can't contain it as well as he thought, because essentially what he thinks is going on is that the spore is finally causing him to lose control, and basically is theorizing this is the cause of his fever and everything. And Jean goes to Batman for help, but quickly thinks that it was a mistake and he needs to run and leave because he's worried that Batman and anyone else close to him will get hurt by association because I believe I already mentioned he's not just having hallucinations. He is specifically seeing the sight of this fiery demon-looking character who... If you want to talk about Pointy. Oh, yeah will later be named as being Haranmir. And Haranmir is, like Jean, a very amorphous character. He has these really pointy... I guess they're literally horns. The top of his head ends in these two sort of diagonal lightning bolt-shaped horns... And he has this really, like, long demonic face where we'll frequently see, like, the core of his face rendered in black with these pointy toothed jaws 
and then like a molten yellow inside of the mouth. And he will frequently be morphing in shape and size, but the consistent aspect of his design is that he's always fiery. And so his color palette consists of these magentas, reds, orange, and yellows. And he's just sort of representing physically, you know, just the crackling and changing shape of fire as he increases in size or dwindles down and seems to be extinguished, etc., etc. Lots of just nice smoky-looking shots, and he's great. All the best things of Carnage's design came from this. There is a sort of Carnage quality to it, yeah, you're right. Like, Carnage feels like if you looked at this and were like, how close can we get Venom to looking like this? Well, it still kind of makes sense, because of the sharp, like, claw fingers, the way the mouth is drawn is very much how, like, Bagley would wind up rendering Carnage's mouth. Which, like, the only thing about Carnage as a character I respect is that gorgeous design. So, you know, huge props to this, doing all of that earlier. Like, all the best bits of that done here before. I've still gotta make you read some symbiotes. I I will... Spider-Man 2 is the symbiote game. I'm still hyped. I'm still enjoying it. I will read a symbiote comic. There are some that I like. Yeah. None of them have Carnage in them. I think his first story is fun. Uh, it's fine, I guess. Um, I like Ultimate Carnage, where they just ditch Cletus entirely, because I find Cletus so annoying. But back to this, um, as Jean is telling Batman how he needs to go and he can't put him in danger like this, he then sees the character who we will then later know is called Haran Mir. I'm just going to say Haran Mir early so that I have a name to fucking call him. But he sees him, and most importantly, Batman also sees him. And so Batman knows that something's going on, and Haran Mir isn't just a figment of Jean's imagination. Oh, here's that great panel I talked about earlier. The green faces. Ah, yes, on yeah. The, uh, the old Martians in their, like, big battle mech armor. Yeah, we get a lot of pages in these, like, opening two issues are of the visions that Jean is seeing, a lot of them concerning the Martian landscape and memories of other Martians. And yeah, like, this page is largely sort of purplish, pinks and purples, with... Just like the green Martian heads really popping against that. It's quite nice. I love the contrast of it, yeah. Yeah. And they're a brighter green than John is, too. Which is interesting. They're like more of a lime green, whereas he's normally in this a bit like more of a sort of medium tone to darker tone green. So it's like really popping. Yeah, it's... An almost neon-y sort of effect. It works really well. In his sort of visions and recollections, we also get some, like, memory or visual representation, like, of his Earth connections. Like, we get this really nice shot of 
the rest of the Justice League, and I really like the sort of just, like, inky, sketchy aspects of Badger's style here, too. Like, there's just a nice sense of fluidity, and I just like it a lot. It's pretty. As Jean has flown away and is fleeing, we get more and more shots of his body and him losing control as he's like flying around and then falling and can't control himself and there's one page in particular where diagonally from the top left across the bottom right over top of the panels of the backgrounds we watch this morph from just like a screaming green head to just like forms gaining more body parts and the final being him with these almost warlock-esque sort of big bulging eyes atop of this alien body that's growing more pointy and more warlike and yeah yeah just looks really fucking good yeah it's an especially great page we get Jean thinking to himself about Dr. Ertl, the man who brought him to Earth, and about how he's dead now, and him just thinking about sort of his lot of where he is now before Haran Mir reappears to talk to Jean some more, and Haran Mir can read Jean's mind telepathically, so he frequently gets... Like him responding to things that Jean had only fought and not said. And Haranmir is talking to Jean about how he left Mars. And as Jean is telling himself that this is all a hallucination, Haranmir is basically telling him that his world and his life as is are the fake things. And when Jean goes to punch him and is calling him a lie, Haran Mir basically does the logical gotcha of, yet you strike out at a lie, you attack an insubstantiality. And basically we just get this excellent fight scene between the two of them. While meanwhile, Batman is collecting the rest of the Justice League to help track Jean down and help him out. When we say rest of the Justice League, this is, I, I think this is Justice League International era. Um, so it's not the characters you're thinking of. We've got Mr. Miracle, who I'm always happy to see. I love Mr. Miracle. Uh, Blue Beetle and Booster Gold, Captain Adam, and um, is that one of like the Red Rocket guys? Who the fuck's the one in the white suit with the red? I think he's literally named Red Rocket. It is Red Rocket? I thought so. This is the era of Justice League where sometimes there's someone on the team and I'm like, who the fuck is that? And that's, this is the only time in DC Comics history where there is someone on the Justice League where I look at it and go, actually no, Detroit. When they were in Detroit as well, I look at the Justice League and I go, who the fuck are all of these people? This is the period that some people have a fondness for and they say it's good, but also... It's very clear to see why they ended up having the fucking Big Seven return and be like, this book is supposed to be about A-listers, actually. 
I think certainly the early JLI stuff is very well thought of because it's it was uh, the Giffen. Um, I'm forgetting the artist's name now. I feel bad, but that like comedic tone, Batman punching Guy Gardner in the face is great. <laughs> yeah. Oddly enough, where I think James Gunn is going with the DCU is actually a Justice League International movie based on the characters he's announced as appearing in his Superman film. Not something I expected. Very funny. Glad it's not New 52 influenced anymore, I'll put it that way. Yeah. The second issue is a lot of the same as the first. It's a lot of Jean fighting Haran Mir confusion over what's real and what isn't real the justice league shows up to try and help but doesn't accomplish much the main sort of plot contribution in the rest of this first half of the series is that we see dr Ertle alive and we get like his narration to himself of just his life at home alone except for his cats and We see that he's been, like, tracking Jean all this time for all these years. You know, the standard sort of newspaper clipping type of coverage. I was quite, like, what the fuck is this when that happened? Because I'm like, no, he's, that's the guy who, like, keeled over from a heart attack as soon as he saw he'd actually found an alien. Yeah, the classic Jean Jones origin story. And, yeah, Ertl's just like... I have a feeling I'm going to see Jean soon. And lo and behold, Jean's flying around out of control, maybe potentially partially steered by Haran Mir, does in fact result in him ending up back in Colorado, where he sees Ertl and understandably is... Having some issues over what is real and what's not real. Yeah, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. And during this exchange, Haran Mir basically surrounds Dr. Ertle with a bunch of fire to see if Jean will save him. And again, another major thing of Martian Manhunter lore is that for all his powers... He's supposed to be weak to fire, and fire's supposed to be the one thing that'll kill him. All Martians are, which is an amazing plot point in the JLA revamp that we previously covered. Yeah. And so it's a mental test of, will Jean risk his life to save this man? This man who he's not even sure is real. And meanwhile... As he's debating this and then rushing through the flames, he keeps getting visions of his past, but realizing that the visions don't all add up and some of them don't make sense of what he thought he knew about his past. As he keeps seeing just these symbols and then flashes of his father and bloated corpses, the fire specifically makes him think of corpses and like giant piles of the dead and he just keeps thinking about memories and lies etc etc i love the way his body is shown distorting as he's getting through the flames and his like his skin becomes a sort of brown color like a reddish brown 
and then his eyes and the inside of his mouth are like the green that he typically is as though his skin is like being so horribly burnt that the only like green left is inside him and it's distorted and like visibly bubbling it's really horrific um and it's like a multi-page sequence of him trying to get through this fire you really feel like the pain that it's causing him to attempt this there's a great bit where like his tongue turns into a bunch of little heads uh so we we love when an alien's tongue is fucking weird as last episode would corroborate yeah he is charred and molten very mercurial it is fucking cool and yeah just his narration throughout this part is sort of variable in how coherent it is as he just like sifts through the memories and the visions and just thoughts of pain and his father and conflicting memories of what happened to his family and suddenly like sometimes thinking i have a daughter and then thinking he doesn't yeah eventually he is able to blow the fire out with his superhuman lungs and dr ertl manages to survive jean saved him in time and when jean sort of reconstitutes himself pulls himself back together it is not in the form that most people are used to of, again, the tidy blueies, the boots, the human musculature, but is in a form that is much more elongated. He is no longer in any sort of clothes. He is all green. He is very spiky, like he has points coming off of the back of his elbows, his knees are very dramatic. There's sort of a line of ridges going down his back. He seems to now be much taller than he was before. And he specifically says, I feel so different, yet so correct. And we're essentially to take this that after all of the mental anguish he went through and being burnt and everything, upon re constituting his body he is returned to his natural form that in all these years on earth he has never returned to i really love this design it's not so inhuman as to be some kind of unrecognizable alien shape so it doesn't make his sort of compromise form feel especially dishonest like, if they pushed this further and he didn't have sort of anything that resembled human anatomy, it would feel, I think, even worse than it kind of does that he feels he has to do that, like, intermediate form to be accepted. Um, but, like, there's clearly no sort of human-style musculature on this. Um, the, like, points of articulation are roughly the same, but the way that all of the limbs are shaped is just different uh his feet almost look like they're in heels it's really cool like leg length boots with heels even yeah um and i love how like angular his head has become his chin is almost like that fake beard that pharaohs used to wear 
in just like how like angular and how jutting out from his head it's become and then above his eyes he has like a really flat sort of top of his head leading to this downward curving sort of spike uh but like all the spikes and like ridges are also clearly formed just out of the same texture like you get the feeling that if you were seeing this in real life it would look almost as though he's made from like a more of a green putty than green sort of skin texture it would look like really bad cgi but that's probably actually what he does look like and i think that's really cool yeah it's like perfectly alien yet hominid enough because yeah like the basic proportions and just bipedal of it all like this is a humanoid shape but yeah just all of the actual length and added details that are also so obviously alien it also manages to impressively convey like a sort of gentleness to it even though he has all of these spikes it's so elegant yeah like it's really elegant there's like you said there's like next to nothing in terms of like muscular definition so even though it's spiky the lack of i guess just sort of like line and definition to the skin or the muscle sort of still gives it a sort of liquid appearance i also like that he has four digits on his hands and then no digits on his feet yeah his feet are literally just boot shaped or heels are just like you know they are footwear there are no toes yeah it's it's both of those are great choices like he might be hooved maybe like they're almost hoof shaped sometimes yeah it could be hooves i suppose yeah it's still like fluid enough that it's kind of hard to say which is another thing that i really love about this approach to drawing jean even in a true form it's still like gonna shift a bit because why wouldn't it yeah i'll also note the page where this real body first appears is against a backdrop of snow so a good half of the page is just pure white to just help him pop all the more and just keep the focus on him because there's relatively not that much going on in the background you know there's a snowy mountain but just really effectively lets the eye rest on just what's going on with this body and he realizes that he's speaking martian for the first time in years that he just feels different but feels right is recognizing this is a true self and that he's accessing memories that he hasn't been able to access and is going through a lot in his head all at once and how much of it is suffering and essentially he's just mentally thinking about how much of what he thought about his life was a lie and dr Ertl just essentially takes him by the hand to try and calm him down and is going to take him back to his home in his lab and sort of tell the truth about what happened and a lot of it's similar basically you know it goes over the story of devoting his life to his science and creating the teleportation machine but one of the main things we learn here that's different from what he fought all this time was that he did not show up alone 
and did in fact arise from the portal holding his mutilated dead daughter's corpse. You know what this backstory revision feels like to me? It feels like Demetrius realized that no one had done anything new with Martian Manhunter post-crisis and was like, oh, I need to come up with the post-crisis Martian Manhunter, um, which, like, what is this, just two years late? And did so, and it's a really fucking good change. I love it. And this is clearly where every other version of the character has pulled a large chunk of the story, even if a lot of the specifics are different. Yeah. I think it's also especially effective that Dr. Ertl becomes a real character here. You know, because, like, the sort of previous idea of just man transports me to Earth and then keels over, you've essentially set up an essential figure in his origin who is then not allowed to be a real character for him to interact with. Well, because you could just send him back if he was still around. Yeah. This is why you either jettison that character entirely, like, for example, the Justice League cartoon does, where how he gets to Earth is entirely different, or, I mean, what do you do with him? Because you can't send John back to Mars, then he's not doing the plot. Yeah. But this finds a way of making it work, which I think is great. Yeah. And essentially, we learn that when Jean arrived, he basically entered a period of, like, prolonged shock and unconsciousness in which his telepathy basically unwittingly was, like, showing Ertl flashes of what had happened to him. And... Ertl essentially, like, got to know him before Jean was ever even really conscious to interact with him, basically. And during this time, Ertl buries his daughter for him. And in a sort of surprising addressal of the question of, well, what do you do with Ertl? Because Ertl could send Jean back. In this revelation of the true events, we see that it is Jean who intentionally destroys the machine, intentionally destroys all of Dr. Ertl's work, because he is essentially so traumatized and so mentally and emotionally fucked up from what his life had become on Mars before being transported that he hates the idea of going back. And essentially... The crux of this stuff is that Martian society had been very interconnected by nature of telepathy, etc., etc. You know, what sort of society would come about of a people who could so easily communicate with each other and were so amorphous and so shifting, etc. And... That sort of interconnectivity becomes the downfall when a plague strikes and takes away the rest of his people, and most specifically his family of his wife and his daughter. And he'd basically lost literally everything shortly before coming to Earth. I really love this, like, approach to Martian society, the idea of it. Like... In many ways, you know, the last Martian who now lives on Earth with Jean feels very Superman, but it's so different from Superman in that he is a grown adult man in this society 
when it's all ripped away from him. And the level of trauma he undergoes, like, because of his telepathy and his mental connection with all of these people on a level deeper than a human could actually, like, understand, his level of trauma from it is beyond incredible. And out of it, he's still, like, functioning in most, like, superhero comics. You know, he's still, like, doing good, still has optimism and that's sort of the thing that makes the character more interesting like he's always a great presence and then the more you learn about this guy the more you're like oh you're actually the coolest one here kind of aren't you in a room with superman and batman and wonder woman in it i think part of what sets him apart too is like in comparison to superman specifically is even though these are two, oh, last alien of your kind on Earth type characters, it's the adult aspect of Jean of, you know, having actually lived through the trauma versus Clark's sort of more of adoption story of, like, being cut off from a heritage versus watching that heritage be destroyed and go up in flames yeah as much as clark is technically a first generation immigrant he's really a second generation immigrant and that's his story and then jean is even more so a refugee and the fear of fire here essentially is revealed to be this psychosomatic thing wherein it's less that fire is such an inherent physical harm to him and more that it's essentially the most traumatic possible image to him because he associates it with the flaming piles of bodies that he just watched everyone he ever knew get tossed into and burned up within, which is very excellent writing and recontextualization of a superhero sort of classic old school weakness yes although giving getting rid of the weakness of the superpower lottery guy um i can see why they brought it back again later in future universe reboots because god this guy is so op (laughs) i do understand it but but this in the context of this it's a great story yeah like its execution here i think is perfect like It's really beautifully done, you know? And yeah, later stories do just kind of ignore this, but I do really love it here because it just makes it more meaningful, you know? Like, a lot of those sort of golden or silver age weaknesses that are there... Oh no, the color yellow. Exactly, the color yellow or kryptonite. Wood. Yeah. Alan Scott can't handle wood. Yeah, we're like... A character in these old school sort of simpler more comic strippy stories where the weakness has to be something that can just be shoved in at a moment's notice so that superman can recoil from the magic rock you know i prefer the the fact that kryptonians aren't proof to magic he's just as vulnerable to like magic as in just like spells as anybody else That's the one I would use the most if I was writing Superman, but yeah, because they they made these characters who are so obscenely powerful, and then 
you know, two issues later, they're like, wait, shit, hang on. Yeah. The color, color yellow is still my favorite one of those. Like, what the hell? It's so stupid. It's it's specifically the fact that, like, if you're going to do that, the obvious thing would be to pick the opposite color on the color wheel. And not only is yellow not the opposite of green, it is half of what makes up the color green. It should so, be purple. Literally. And if nothing else... It absolutely should not be blue or yellow, because green is a mixture of those two things. But, anyway. Anyway. During this sort of Dr. Ertl explaining Jean's life to him, beautiful sequence, we get the revelation that in his weak, traumatized state, you know, wherein... Jean's mind was largely pushing away the truth of what happened to him to cope. Ertl, through their bond, was sort of able to form a new sense of framework and story for Jean's life to be one that he would be able to cope with, and he largely had on his mind sci-fi works that he as an Earthling had read about Mars, and, like, Edgar Rice Burroughs is name-dropped. Things like that. It and... explains the outfit. It's John Carpenter. Now it makes sense. It's the same source as He-Man. Yeah. It's very, like, Alien showed up on my doorstep. Alien doesn't want to think about the truth. Needs me to make up his life. So I just read him my sci-fi novels. And tell him <laughs> that's what his life was like. Like, down to, like, the Martians being sort of a proud warrior race when actually they were, like, a society of basically all poets. Yeah, that's a big thing, too, is, like, the contrast between all of these militaristic visions and then the, oh, we're all just constantly telepathically saying poetry to each other stuff. I mean, the thing is, if you can feel everything that your enemy feels as you kill them, you're far less likely to start killing people. So I really like that. As like, if a society was telepathic, they probably wouldn't be warlike. That doesn't make sense. Why would they need to do that? And Jean, having taken in all this information, decides that he wants to return to Mars for the first time to trigger further memory. He wants to abandon you know, the running away and the lies, and he wants to just be able to grasp the full truth. And in the years since their departure, Ertl has built another machine. He is able to send Jean across the solar system. And issue three ends with Jean landing on Earth. On Mars. <laughs> Why did I say on Earth? I don't know. We end with Jean decidedly leaving Earth, arriving on his homeworld of Mars. I just said Earth because Earth is usually interchangeable with home, but no, that's nope. the whole point here. Um, and he immediately runs back into Haranmir. Who is, from what Jean has said before now, the Martian god of fire and death. Yes, yeah. We shall see if that holds out, considering he's been kind of wrong about everything else in his life. Every single thing that he remembers is wrong. But yeah, it does feel like, hang on, they didn't change this character's backstory in the post-crisis? 
let me uh, let me retcon something in here, but like it's really good, so I I am very glad that this was done. Yeah, it also was just a long needed giving the character actual attention at all too, but outside of just like the context of oh he's on the Justice League and everyone thinks he's nice, but structurally this series essentially the first two issues establish the premise of Jean losing control and running around and being freaked out and confused in the Justice League sort of running after him. Issue three is like, okay, we're achieving some lucidity and we build up to a lot of the basic plot reveals with regards to the past. And issue four is essentially Jean has begun to face who he is he is now going to go on this beautiful dance of the soul in this emotional meditation on life and death and rebirth and mourning. He has to deal with his trauma now for the first time. Yeah. And it specifically was my memories of how good I thought this finale was that colored my memory of just how much I liked the series and knew that I would want to talk about it. Yeah, when I was reading it, the first two issues, I was like, I mean, this is fine, I love the art, but, like, there's just sort of a lot of stuff happening. And then the third issue, I was like, oh, okay, and then the fourth issue, I was like, oh, I get why we're covering this now. Yeah, the ending is excellent. And, again, Jean instinctively is lashing out at Haran Mir, is just angry, tired of his shit, a lot of what do you want for me type stuff. And we then see the shift from Haran Mir as believed to be antagonist to Haran Mir as downright angelic figure. When throughout the series, he has been referring to Jean as the son of Mars. And here he specifically refers to Jean as my last child sort of putting the god thing in a different context. And in one of his uh, thought captions, Jean specifically says, I look into his eyes, and for the first time I don't see death. I see sorrow and a strange, inexplicable hope. To which Hranmir says, You need me, son of Mars, and I need you. All of us need you. And Haran Mir then sort of carries Jean by the hand across the ruins of Mars. You know, like there's some remaining architecture, but that's it. Everyone's dead. And it's essentially Haran Mir guiding Jean through the ruins of his old home world. And Jean sort of gets more visions, but they're of very specifically reality, things that did happen, and Haranmir sort of shows him the history of Martian evolution, wherein we get these great shots of birds, and essentially the idea is that Martians descended from winged beasts. And like all throughout this beforehand, we've been getting these images periodically of birds in his mind, and of, like, birds within Haranmir's molten mouth. And here we get the context of, like, birds as these evolutionary precursors to the Martians, and 
I just think it's cool. I love the way the birds are rendered, where they're just, like, pure black against a bright yellow background when we see them. It's really, like, stunning and, and abstract in a really cool way. Like, they look pretty much like birds, but because of the, like, silhouette, you know, you can still, they still look alien and strange and bizarre. I like finding out that Martians are descended from birds, just like the Shi'ar from X-Men. Yeah. The memory sequences then continue into Martian society, into Jean's life, and with it the plague, as he begins to get these flashes of just all of the dead, including his family. He has the memory specifically of his wife's body being consumed by the fires, and as he's just screaming from all of this, and after just a bit of just, like, this trauma reaching its crescendo, everything then sort of goes quiet, and he's back to sort of the present, except then he's essentially joined by what I'm just going to call ghosts of his wife and his daughter, and they walk with him for a time before seeing yet more Martians or ghosts of Martians sort of just floating about, swirling in different shapes, rising into the sky. You know, there's a very specific just like rise to heaven sort of feel to all of these visions here. And although obviously this is all beautiful and what John would want, he also is resisting it mentally, and as he's wondering why he's doing that, his wife answers his thoughts by saying that he's doing it because he knows that it won't last, and telling him that just as memories of Mars darkened his life on Earth, the shadow of Earth would do the same here, and when he does the whole, Earth is nothing to me, this is my home sort of thing, his wife's just like, the earth is alive. The people are alive. Go listen to their voices as you've listened to ours. And when John says that he needs his family and he needs them, his daughter tells him that what they need is rest because all of these years spent in his memory, even sublimated, have essentially, like, prevented them as a people from being able to fully cross the threshold into just the rest after death or whatever new phase of existence. And the Haran Mir has brought Jean here as a means of bringing peace to both of them and to Jean, of just basically, like, getting him to let go as a means to then allow them to let go. And we get this scene of Haran Mir, black and magenta outline with a large molten flowy core as we see just this procession of Martians all marching into him. And then, like, transforming back into the birds that they evolved from. It's some really gorgeous imagery I love the idea of, because of the telepathic nature of their species, until he lets go of them and accepts their deaths, 
to some extent, they are trapped mentally outside of the true, like, whatever the next step is in the Martian religion that's clearly real, because Fronme is right here. Um, it's the DC universe. Everyone's religion is real. Yeah, every god is real in a comic book. Um, which, I mean, good for them. Uh, so, like, tying the resolution of the story and the resolution of the conflict to the character dealing with his trauma and accepting, you know, the true history of his life, but also not wallowing in misery because of it. It just, yeah, it's great. Th this last issue was so fucking good. It's a really touching handling of death and mourning, yeah. Like, him having to face it and, you know, not deny it and not run away and not even necessarily, like, reject sadness over it, but just having to keep going, essentially. And a lot of the narration, specifically, is just very nice. I'll quote some of it. All the ghosts of Mars rise on the air. All the love of my people fills me, and at long last, I'm free to both remember and let go. To which Haranmi replies, as are they, son of Mars, to soar the heights of heaven, all of us are finally free. And this is set against what you mentioned of within Haranmir, the forms transforming back into the birds from which they came, as just this great transformation of this people, which then you turn the page and it's the shot of Jean once again just alone on the surface of Mars saying goodbye and smiling to himself before telepathically communicating to Dr. Ertle that he's ready for him to bring him back to Earth, where Ertle and the Justice League are all happy to see him again. You know, they have the obligatory, oh, you look different, but everybody's happy, it's all good. And then we Batman get... Batman is officially the most racist member of the Justice League because he's like, uh, that's gonna take some getting used to. I'm like, he doesn't look that weird. <laughs> there is that line, you're right. <laughs> Everyone else is like, yeah, okay, and Batman's like, oh, I'm gonna have to... Uh, give, give, me, give me a minute with this one. Bat you're taller than me now. Batman's like, what will the neighbors think? <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh... We then get a two-page afterward. The way... I'm tired. The way I was struggling to find the word afterward in my mind. I was like, afterlog? Epilogue? Epilogue. There we you go. You were, like, mixing afterward and epilogue, which are basically the same thing in this case. Yeah. And I'll specify that there's a page turn between these two in terms of just, like, how it's experienced as a reader... In that page one of this epilogue begins with the caption, Three days later, somewhere in the Nevada desert, a lone figure dances, his movements more graceful, more elegant than any ever seen on this world. As he leaps, bows, spins, he sings. In a language of rare beauty, he sings. The words recall a planet long dead but well remembered. The melody counters of aural portraits of a daughter, a wife, a life of love and fulfillment that few beings on any world have ever known. 
For a time, both dance and song grow darker as a god named Taronmir is invoked, as a time of death and fire is recalled. But the music soon brightens, the movements quicken, as the darkness is enveloped in a sweet, firm light. And in the image behind all these captions, we see Jean once again amorphous, not just like in his natural form, but like morphing freely, tendrils shooting off in less humanoid directions, just sort of like dancing alone in the desert and letting his body do what it will as, you know, there's just another concept. The idea of dance and the body as art in the form of a shapeshifter who can turn into anything. And it then shifts to not third person, but first person from Jean. I dance with the past. I pray to it. I honor my world and my family. I hold them close as breath. Then gently, so gently, let them go. And then you turn the page, and it's him, upright, arms extended, and face looking up toward the sky, against just this lovely shot of, just like the sunlight against the deserts, and illuminating his green skin, and just this triumphant pose with the final caption, I've come home. These last two pages alone are incredible. <laughs> it's great. It it like you need to read this series just for like the last issue and a half of this series. Yeah. Like the the start is a little like rough and difficult to get into beyond just how gorgeous the art looks, but the payoff is so great. Yeah, like I don't think the start's bad by any means, but it definitely sort of takes its time before it really fully hits its stride but then once it gets going it gets going and the end is excellent it becomes kind of i think the definitive story for the character i completely agree like i haven't read all of the rest of the martian manhunter solo stuff but of the ones i've read this is unquestionably the best this feels like a character defining like just like thesis statement of what this character is and what he can be. This is his Batman year one. It's so fierce. I really fucking love the last two pages of just like the swirling of the dance and then culminating in just like a triumphant end of performance pose. I would love to see them have him be more free with his physical form when he's hanging out with the League. You don't get to see, like, that approach to Jean very often. And I really love the idea that the Martians basically never stuck in a single form. Because why the hell would you? You would always just be shifting around. And because you're all telepathic, you can always tell who you're talking to, regardless of what they look like. That's why the telepathy and the shapeshifting actually go really well together on, like, a societal level of imagining this alien race. Yeah... The flight and the invulnerability and the laser vision and the super breath, they're just there for cool superhero stuff, but... <laughs> yeah. For a character who one of his main things is shape-shifting, we don't get enough... Not that they never do it, but I think they could lean more into the shifting and just, like... I would want to read Martian Manhunter books where the artists can get more warlock with it. 
you know? Because the power set is there to do it. He's always green, so you can always tell who he is when he's in a room. So I don't think it's, like, a problem for storytelling to have him look different in every panel because he shifts to express emotion like he was at the end. Like, maybe not in as cartoony as, way as, like, Warlock. I think he it would be more, like, shape and form than exaggerated expressions the way Warlock frequently dies into. But uh, I would love to see it. I mean, if I was a writer for DC Comics... I would write Martian Manhunter into whatever series I would be writing, because he kind of could fit with anyone. Like, he is a great contrast to Superman in a Superman book. He actually works really well with Batman, because they're both detectives. You know, you can he, you can put him anywhere. Yeah, I think in the New 52 they put him in Stormwatch for some reason. I've never read it, but... Well, they had to kick him out of for Justice League, because um, I don't know why. Oh, well, I guess they wanted to have a at least one character who wasn't a white human on the team. And so rather than just have Jon Stewart be a founding member of the Justice League instead of Hal Jordan, they got rid of the definitive Justice Leaguer who was in every version of the team in every iteration. If he's not there, it's not the Justice League. Yeah, very like... Well, he's the one that doesn't always have a book, so corporate-wise, he seems most expendable, except... Now that Cyborg, Cyborg's the one who doesn't always have a book, because when did Cyborg ever have a book? Yeah. He was always in Teen Titans. And then they took him out of the Teen Titans. And both franchise, both he and the Titans, I think, have suffered for that. Oh, a lot, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Modern DC is finally starting to turn it around again, like, right now, kind of, sometimes, a bit. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. The other Martian Manhunter solo I've read is the 2015, which we may read some at some point, because I think that book is very fun. I would still call this one the definitive, but I think of the others, that's the one that's most interesting. Oh yeah, that's the one where they pulled the design from for uh, Young Justice. Mm. Which, Young Justice is interesting in that the big change to the Martian characters in Young Justice is Mars is still around, and it becomes a metaphor for racism because of the white Martian, uh, green Martian distinction being like instead of the white martians being like an ancient warlike race that contrasts with the green martians who are the ones we think of most of the time they're now like just the same species with a different skin color and all the greens are really racist i've never watched it but yeah it i think it's weirdly the most extensive time we've spent on mars in any dc adaptation for sure possibly even the comics because there's like a whole arc of the most recent season that is set on this version of Mars and there's a lot Ms. Martian is like one of the main characters of the show and she's cool I like the character it's so weird to me that Mars is still around yeah like that that's just always been odd because I'm like but 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 it's like the Superman backstory but he was an adult why okay he could just sort of go back why did he not go back in the first place <laughs> Like, it's just up there. It's not like these characters can't 
go to another planet, they their main like headquarters is orbiting the Earth. They can go there casually, so you have the means to get to Mars. It's just a bit of a trip. <laughs> yeah. With that said, though, now that we're going off topic a bit, I think we can wrap up. Yep. Yeah, I'm rambling. Yeah. This was Martian Manhunter. Like we said, it is not on DC Infinity, so you have to go out of your way to track it down. Good luck, guys. If you're not lucky enough to find it in a comic shop back issue bins, go to my comic shop, eBay, whatever online place, and it's worth it. But in the meantime, thank you all for listening this week, and bye. Bye. Excellent to each other.